You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and me bursting through the door after a month-long absence, much like the Kool-Aid man, to talk about queer and trans issues. When people think about countries in the world where the 2S LGBTQ plus community is not only recognized but also celebrated, Canada is always somewhere at the top of that list, and we have been for years. The view we take here is that uh, there's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. We will ensure that our legislation includes and legally recognizes uh, the union of same-sex couples. Here's to us, our lawyers, and Canada. We were wrong. We apologize. I am sorry. We are sorry. It is Pride Month, the time of the year where downtown stores go all out in a fierce battle of who can have the most rainbow decked out, glitterified storefront. Pride Month really said, retail is my runway and I look forward to seeing which bank on Church Street is the gayest this year. But more seriously, the history of queer and trans rights in Canada is not as simple as pride campaigns, parades, and vibrant gay villages. Ours is a history of resilience, courage, and determination to redefine what it means to be free and equal. When most people think of LGBT history in North America, they think of Stonewall, which was a critical juncture for queer and trans folks, but that was an event that happened in New York City. And about 500 kilometers north, Canada was having a reckoning of its own. Canadian homosexuals are having their careers ruined, being kicked out of their churches, having their children taken away from them, and being assaulted in the streets of our own city. We're fed up with the lack of basic respect due all human beings. Here in Canada, queer people, and trans people in particular, have historically been met with waves of violence. From state-sanctioned police violence, to the psychological interrogation of civil servants, to so much more. 
So, during the gayest month of the year, the backbench is taking you back to notable moments in Canada's history so we can remember the people and work that have made Canada the place it is today. When I was in undergrad, I decided to make being gay my full-time pursuit and I enrolled in the sexual diversity studies major at U of T. I was not always a star student when I was in school, but one of the courses that captured my attention the most was a class that I took in my last year on sexuality and the law in Canada. So for this episode, I invited my former professor to join us on the backbench. Her name is Brenda Cosman. She's a professor of law at the University of Toronto and is actively involved in law reform, particularly in the area of same-sex couples and families. She's authored reports for the now-defunct Law Commission of Canada, as well as the Ontario Law Reform Commission on the legal regulation of adult relationships. And like so many folks that have been involved in legal activism and scholarship around queer and trans rights, she is a total powerhouse. Let's get into it. As I mentioned in the intro, I actually took a course with you at U of T a number of years ago, and I'm afraid to ask this question because I was not always <laughs> a great student, but do you remember me from class? <laughs> I don't. I don't remember you from class. I actually, when you were having your run on Jeopardy, I went back to see that you were, in fact, on my class list. Mm-hmm. I was not somebody who talked a lot, which is, like, shocking for anybody who knows me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So before we dive into some history stuff, I want to know what drew you to focus focus on this area of law in particular, because it's kind of a specific focus and not really something that when I'm speaking with friends that are pursuing law, either that are, I have a bunch of friends that just finished their articles. This is not something that anybody's really looking to practice. So I want to know what drew you to this line of work. Partly it's just because I'm a law professor as opposed to a practicing lawyer, which gives you a whole lot more flexibility in terms of different areas you want to pursue. And so when I started out, my main field was really family law, but also discrimination law, particularly discrimination against women. So I was doing, you know, gender studies and it was the late 1980s. And it was a time where LGBT rights were just really kind of coming onto the scene in terms of like charter cases. And it just slowly began to attract more and more of my attention. And I ended up doing, in fact, a lot more LGBT rights and a lot more sort of queer studies than I did women's rights and, you know, feminist studies. My, my work really kind of moved more and more into that as, as the focus of what I did. Yeah. So would you say that the timing of late 80s with the charter being relatively in its infancy, do you think that the sort of new legal framework of the charter opened the door for more legal agitation for queer and trans rights? Or was it just kind of more of a coincidence that that was when you happened to start working in the field? For me, it's likely just a coincidence that it's when I started working in the field. However, once the charter came into effect, the equality provisions in 1985. So that was a moment in time where homosexuality had already been partially decriminalized. That happened in like 1968, 1969. Lots and lots of discrimination continued in the aftermath of decriminalization because decriminalization, all it did was partially decriminalize gay sex between two folks in private over 21. I think that, uh, you know, what's done in private between adults uh, doesn't concern the criminal code. When it becomes public, this is a different matter. But it didn't do anything else about all the kinds of discrimination that gay folks faced. And so when the charter came into effect, that is when a lot of LGBT, and really at this point it was L and G, it was really gay and lesbian at this point, the trans piece, as far as legal rights go, really comes on the scene much later. 
But that was where a lot of the advocates really saw an opportunity to try to push for formal equality for gay and lesbian folks, because there really was none. There were no equality protections. You could fire folks for being gay. You could refuse housing. You could do all sorts of things. So two things happened about the same time. One, there started to be a push to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation into the human rights codes and to start to push whether the charter would protect sexual orientation. So these two things are starting to happen um, around the same time in the, in the 80s. That's really when there starts to be this huge focus on equality rights. And so slowly, province by province, amends their human rights codes to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And that's then when it starts to become illegal to fire people for being LGBT or well, actually, again, gay and lesbian. It becomes discrimination if you try to not hire someone or fire someone on the basis of sexual orientation or to deny them housing on the basis of sexual orientation. So we start to see formal equality building there. First, we get the court saying, yes, sexual orientation is protected by the charter, so you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. Once you get that in in employment, then it moves to relationship recognition. First, Relationship recognition, meaning, so the folks doing this decided not to go for marriage first because they just thought that was just going to be too challenging, too difficult. So they started a strategy to say same-sex couples should be treated the same as unmarried opposite-sex couples. So leaving marriage out of the picture, unmarried opposite-sex couples were recognized for a whole bunch of reasons. And so the first litigation then really focused on that. We get a big decision in the end of the 1990s that says, yeah, you can't discriminate against same-sex couples. We should treat them exactly the way we treat opposite-sex couples. Then, that's late 90s, then the target becomes marriage, lots of litigation to try to get marriage. By 2005, then marriage has been accomplished. Same-sex marriage has been implemented through a combination of, of court cases and eventually the federal government saying, yeah, 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 you're right, let's just do this. That was an incredible and like very succinct summary of a lot of things that I think people, especially like people of my generation who didn't live through a lot of this litigation, this history thing is often not spoken about. There are a couple things I want to just go back and dive a little bit into in some more detail. So one is I really appreciate kind of bringing up the decriminalization in 1969 as being, you know, an important milestone, but also not something that stopped criminalization, that it was pretty limited in its overview. I remember a couple of years ago in 2019 for the 50th anniversary, there was like a big PR push to recognize that at that point it was no longer legal to be gay, when in practice people continued being criminalized for gay sex acts for long after that. I'm fairly familiar with the history of, for instance, like bathhouse raids in Toronto specifically. Suddenly we hear... A great thunder of noise above us it sounded like doors being smashed and we heard glass being broken. It was a very terrifying feeling because it comes all suddenly like a blitzkrieg. But also, I believe, in other major cities in Canada through the 80s, 90s, and even into the 21st centuries. It's a complicated history. So great fanfare, 1969, the claim is homosexuality is decriminalized. And as folks have been really much more careful trying to say now, it was partially decriminalized. So you could have gay sex in private between two people who were over the age of 21. Now, that meant homosexuality or gay sex was still being treated very differently than other sex. The age of consent was higher. There could only be two people, and it also absolutely had to be in private. Now, sex in public has a whole bunch of other laws that deal with it gay and straight alike. 
But here's where we have a bunch of laws around indecency, so indecency laws or indecent acts, and they apply to having sex in, quote, a public place. So then there became, for years, it was very contested about what a public place was. And so when there were the bathhouse raids in the early 1980s, the big fight was around, was a bathhouse a public place? And so, you know, the, the police came in, did this massive raid, hundreds of men were arrested, they did huge damage to the bathhouses, very high profile. The raids were estimated to cost the taxpayers of Toronto a quarter of a million dollars, and police with crowbars and sledgehammers are alleged to have caused over $35,000 damage. It was such a, a violation of the entire community, I felt. And hard to believe it had happened on that scale and that unexpectedly, that drastically, dramatically. And the gay community really fought back at that point. First thing you gotta know is that the barracks and the Romans and the Club Toronto are open again. And they're not going to be intimidated, neither should we. One of the sort of lasting legacies of the bathhouse raids was to really challenge the idea of privacy. And it was all about then the right to privacy. And Privacy doesn't just mean in your bedroom, in your home. There are other places where you can create conditions of privacy, including a bathhouse. A bathhouse where, whether it was in, you know, small cubicles, you're creating conditions of privacy. And that was the basis for really the, the pushback at that point. And this was all done under indecency laws. They were done under common body house laws that included, so when we think of body house laws, we used to think mostly about prostitution, but it also was places where acts of indecency habitually occur. That meant like a gay sex club or a bathhouse. And so the police would target gay sex using those provisions. Now, a lot of those provisions are still with us. And over time, it sort of has come in ebbs and flows. I mean, after the big Toronto bathhouse raids, it was like almost like a detente was reached with the Toronto police that they wouldn't. They sort of just didn't raid any further. But then, you know, in the 90s, we start to see some raids. In the early 2000s, the lesbian bathhouse was raided. It's come in sort of ebbs and flows. And those laws were still on the books. And indecency laws, because they're still there, they can be used. I mean, they often aren't very successfully used. But, you know, sometimes they actually are successfully used. And I guess, like, to kind of tie in, like, how relatively recent this history is of specifically the Pussy Palace, later Pleasure Palace raid in Toronto. She looked up at me and said, JP, the cops are here. What do we do? We just stood there and waited to see what would happen. I saw them come in and walk down the hall. I could hear my heart beating in my ears. The head guy, his manner was slick and patronizing. You see one woman come into the corner of the pool and lean down and it was like a wildfire. Everybody in the pool scattered. They just jumped out of it, grabbed towels. There was a mass exodus of people leaving. One of the officers who was involved in that is now the Toronto Chief of Police, right? So they're very much still, I guess, again, for the benefit of people who are maybe listening who don't remember the history from living through it, there are very much still officers who were involved in a lot of these raids that are in positions of power in various police forces. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. 
I have recently been victim of a robbery. My younger brother has successfully robbed me of all of my AG1. And if that is not a testament to how good AG1 is, I really don't know what is. AG1 by Athletic Greens is a foundational nutritional drink that is packed with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. Essentially, it's an alternative to swallowing mouthfuls of vitamins every morning, which is a huge hassle. AG1 is just one drink that covers all of your bases, and it's making it that much easier for you to get your vitamins in. AG1 replaces a lot of other supplements, like your daily multivitamin, your minerals, pre- and probiotics for gut health, adaptogens, and a greens blend. It's literally all there in just one scoop of powder. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com backbench. That's athleticgreens.com backbench. Check it out. One thing that sort of I think sometimes happens is like if you're someone who's a member of multiple groups that are discriminated against, so for instance, if you are queer and, you know, a person of color, specifically if you're queer and black, oftentimes you are multiply marginalized and that leads to you being unable perhaps to access some of that formal legal equality in a way that somebody who is marginalized along one axis might be able to. So I do want to talk a bit just about the experience of racialized and in particular black, queer and trans people. For instance, in 2016, Black Lives Matter Toronto did their sit-in during the Toronto Pride Parade, basically to protest the mistreatment of queer and trans black people by the Toronto police. The reality is we halted the Pride Parade today because Pride Toronto as an organization has been constantly pushing black folk in terms of their programming, other marginalized communities, in terms of the programming in a very far, far place away in order for us to celebrate our pride. What have the experiences of those communities looked like in terms of them like fighting for rights that might be particular to them or fighting for legal recognition? I mean, it's just, it's so important because so much of the fight for quote LGBT rights was really trying to get equality on the basis or non-discriminant on, on the basis of sexual orientation and then gender identity and gender expression. Now, it's important to have that, but it also only goes so far because when we then see how police do policing, who gets targeted, who is on their radar screen, that's something completely, completely different. And so that, you know, the police could could literally say, we're not targeting people on the basis of sexual orientation. You know, they may or may not be, but but what they are doing is, you know, targeting people based on various intersectional, like intersectional identities. I mean, it's very much up against the limits of formal equality. Like formal equality is really important, but there's a lot of things that it just doesn't do. It's much more difficult to try to deliver some kind of substantive equality with that. So if you have, say, uh, Black trans youth who are going to be, you know, disproportionately economically disadvantaged, disproportionately still represented amongst homeless populations, disproportionately represented amongst, for example, folks engaged in sex work and street sex work. Now, Formal equality on the basis of sexual orientation isn't going to do anything to protect those folks who are going to be targeted by policing because of the situation that they find themselves in. So one of the things I think that's also, this is a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a detour, but I promise it'll come back. There's a lot of laws that are not targeting LGBT communities. So sex work laws, for example, they apply to everybody, right? They apply straight, gay, trans, but who gets targeted? Who ends up being targeted by those laws? 
There's also a lot of, you know, First Nations folks and First Nations women who get, you know, disproportionately targeted by these laws. But one of the things that we've seen is trans women of color being targeted by sex work laws. Now, so do straight sex workers, but sex work laws are deeply problematic the way they get enforced against various communities. It's hard to challenge sex work laws saying they discriminate on the basis of sexual identity or sexual expression or sexual orientation. They don't, except who do they impact? And we can see that they really do. They have a, it's a terrible impact on trans women of color, for example. So there's a way in which, you know, simple equality rights are not going to be able to address the continuing and rampant forms of racism that Black folks experience, but that Black queer folks are then going to experience this. There's the racism and the homophobia and the transphobia and how all that intersects. So I think when we, when we think right now about what the current issues are and what the future issues are, we really need to think about the communities uh, that do experience multiple forms of oppression. You know, things are much better for economically privileged white gay folks. Things are like much better for them right now in a way that, you know, for trans communities of color, these are like completely different worlds, even though there's formal equality rights, but, but the actual worlds are completely, completely different. And I think that, you know, the LGBT community really now needs to be thinking about, about those communities, about thinking about youth and homeless folks. Trans youth is, of course, disproportionately represented in, in homeless communities. So we need to be thinking about all of those. We need to be thinking about all those marginalized communities who, sure, there are formal equality rights, but that doesn't help them at all. Yeah. And I mean, even in a situation where the way in which you're experiencing discrimination is very cleanly covered by formal equality rights, for instance, if you are experiencing like housing discrimination is a huge thing, right? That, you know, it is very difficult, I think, to prove in a lot of cases that you're experiencing housing discrimination on the basis of like your sexual orientation, your gender expression, or even on race. And the people who are going to be able to you know, actually leverage the fact that that exists as like a prohibited form of discrimination in law are the people that are already probably relatively less likely to be discriminated against. Like, so for instance, I would say it's fairly unlikely that if I needed to rent a new apartment, I would experience discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. But if I were to experience that, I would also have the ability to actually like do something about it in a way that the people who are the most marginalized almost certainly do not, right? So I think that that's another way in which I guess that formal legal equality is obviously, like, good to have and certainly better than the alternative, but is very limited in its scope and what it can do for people in specific vulnerable situations. Absolutely. So speaking about just sort of like, I guess, relatively more recent developments, we've talked a lot about, you know, trans people of color and that specific intersection. You know, if we want to talk like culture war issues, I hate to use the term culture war, but the existence of trans people, period, seems to be one of the most hot button issues that especially like right wing political commentators are using to get people sort of riled up and are othering in, in a sense and like massively just kind of inflating the significance and, and size of trans communities beyond uh, what they actually are. So in Canada, we've seen this increasing recognition and protection of trans rights. Like I remember I was working in Ottawa the summer that Bill C-16, which was I think the bill that 
added um, gender expression to the Canadian Human Rights Code, I believe, as a protected class. This is a message to all Canadians that we live in a time where discrimination in any form is completely unacceptable. And seeing, like, the sort of shift between what an exciting time that was for, like, a lot of trans people who were showing up to see those debates take place to now, where we see a lot of people getting dragged in to you know, I can't even call it like American transphobia because Jordan Peterson came from here. We have a lot of famous transphobes from here. Why is it important to like explicitly protect trans rights versus having it lumped in with sexual orientation rights? You know, starting with, for example, Bill C-16, one of the things that was so to me frustrating about all the debates around Bill C-16 was it was adding gender identity and gender expression to the Canadian Human Rights Code. Gender identity and gender expression had already been added to all of the provincial human rights codes and all the territorial human rights codes starting at least 10 years before. And the Canadian Human Rights Code, the federal government was an outlier here. And it also had very limited jurisdiction because most of the stuff that human rights codes cover are really covered by the provincial ones. So there was a way in which this was making like a, a mountain out of a molehill. And it's not to say that, you know, adding it to the Canadian Human Rights Code wasn't important, but it covered such little areas. The right wing used it and made it inflammatory, made claims that were grossly exaggerated about what the potential impact would be. And I would say that was almost like the beginning of the real big Canadian backlash against trans folks. And it's not to say that things were great before, but it sort of really became at that moment really part of the culture wars, really part of the backlash that we're now seeing. You know, sometimes this happens. I mean, visibility and formal equality rights breed backlash. Court decisions in favor of something breed backlash against it. So, you know, some folks would say the worst thing that ever happened to abortion rights in the United States was Roe v. Wade, because what Roe v. Wade did was like a big red flag. And even though states were actually decriminalizing abortion, you know, state by state by state, this big Supreme Court decision was like this red flag that anti-abortion groups have mobilized against for decades. They finally won. So similarly here, I think, you know, big formal equality victories can actually increase both visibility of marginalized communities and then feed the backlash. So we have been seeing the backlash growing basically since Bill C-16. And this is growing. We're seeing it in the United States. We're seeing it in England. We're starting to see it here around the scapegoat. So for a while, the scapegoat were gay people. Now the scapegoat are trans people. And even more than that, what we're really seeing is the focus particularly on, and this is, you know, a broad category of trans, but the, the focus, for example, on drag queens, a huge backlash against you know, drag queens reading story time in libraries. The demonstrators held up signs with anti-trans and anti-drag messaging and called for an end to drag story time events. We're seeing that here now, you know, kind of across the country. And it's something that is very highly visible. And so they're kind of attacking the, the visibility. It's just a, a really quite horrendous now targeting of trans folks. And I would say, you know, trans women in particular. Now, there's, you know, distinction between drag queens and trans women, but not in the eyes of the culture wars that, that are attacking. In terms of, you know, the difference here, why do we need gender expression and gender identity recognized separately from sexual orientation? Well, because I think they're actually very, very different things. So one's gender identity is very different than one's sexual orientation. In fact, we 
we all have gender identities, right? Who we identify as. We all have gender identities. We all have sexual orientations, which of course, you know, people in the mainstream or who are, you know, sort of normatively dominant don't think of themselves as having, you know, sexual orientation is what other people have. Straight isn't a sexual orientation. Yeah, actually it is. Identifying as a cis woman, that's not a gender identity. Actually it is. But I think what's really important about it is that these are actually very different things and the discrimination occurs very differently. The experiences of discrimination are very different and they, they do need to be protected differently. What I look at as like sort of the most pressing and present challenges for queer and trans communities in Canada is like I see this anti-trans backlash as kind of I think it's being used by the right wing as a wedge issue to sort of make anti-queer and trans sentiment more publicly acceptable in a way that it sort of hasn't been for most of, I guess, my sort of teen and adult life, right? So I think specifically scapegoating trans women and specifically also using children as almost like a social battering ram in a way that there's a lot of focus on things like drag queen story hours that like aren't that prominent to begin with, that like kids are really not being forced to attend in any kind of meaningful way. Kids engage with much in the same way as they engage with like people that are dressed up as Disney princesses. Like to them, This is just, like, someone who's wearing interesting clothes. We see that kind of, like, social battering ram effect. I've also seen, like, the return of the sort of anti-kids being out as queer and trans at school discourse that I thought had sort of gone away. Premier Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick was, like, recently quoted as saying he thinks that, you know, parents should be informed if their kids are out as queer and trans at school. One of the things that we're really seeing right now is in the attack on trans folks, in the attack on drag queens, there is a reliance on what is a very old trope is what about the children? Oh, what about the children? And the old trope is, and it used to be, all gay folks are pedophiles, right? Gay folks are just pedophiles and they're grooming the children. Now it is trans folks are pedophiles and they're grooming the children. This is as old as, you know, the 1970s, Anita Bryant, who, you know, led this this horrible charge against gay and lesbian folks, all about the children. This is a very old trope, a very effective one. Because then people are like, oh my goodness, what about the children? There is zero, zero evidence that queer and trans folks are disproportionately represented amongst the pedophile community. Like, I see that as being sort of the, I don't know, Pandora's box being open to possibly see some regression and like to see... I guess, like, open hostility towards queer and trans communities become acceptable in a way that it hasn't been for much of my life. So I guess you have been around for longer, I'll say, and have seen a lot more of this history actually happen as opposed to me having, like, read about it and and learned about it. What do you see as sort of the most pressing challenges being faced by queer and trans people? And what do you see as potential paths for progress in those areas? The idea that I've been around for a long time is such a nice way of calling me old. Um, <laughs> That's like one of my specialties is calling people old in a, in a kind way. Yes. And I have been around for a long time and I have seen a lot of like a lot of transitions. And, you know, there's a way in which we we often describe LGBT rights as a kind of progress narrative, right? It goes from it was criminalized and then it was decriminalized and then when there were equality rights and then there's same-sex marriage and everything is getting better. Now, I've always tried to trouble that narrative by saying, you know, there's a bunch of other things going on at the same time, like whether it's bathhouse raids or censorship or, you know, continuing poverty and targeting of vulnerable communities. So I've, I've always tried to problematize that progress narrative. But there's a way in which the progress narrative is still with us, which is, okay, but there is formal equality, right? And surely things have gotten a little bit better. 
I am quite worried about what we're seeing happening. Deeply troubled at the outright attacks we are now seeing first against trans communities, but also against gay communities. Now we're seeing it, you know, particularly viciously in the United States. But, you know, what happens in the United States has a big spillover to us. The really vicious attacks that we're seeing with with the right and the alt-right on gay rights right now, like the attempt to really, now of course in the U.S. they got they got rights considerably later, but the attempt to overrule those, whether it's in Florida, you know, the don't say gay. I mean, literally, you like don't say gay. What is that? The attack on trans folks. We probably shouldn't be very surprised because the rise of the right and the alt-right and the, the sort of the rise of this populism and authoritarianism, given that it is now seemingly legitimate, and, and I use legitimate in quotation marks, to express white supremacy ideas. I mean, we are seeing a change in the political environment, the likes of which I've never seen. We need to be really vigilant. I find it chilling. Like I find what's happened in the last few years to be really chilling and absolutely challenging that idea that, you know, there's this progress narrative and everything is so much better now. It's like, these rights are precarious. What we do have is not enough and they are deeply precarious. Yeah, and I think for me, like, that's why this sort of learning the history is so important. People's memories are very short. Yes. I think that there's a, a notion of, well, because things have been this way for the past, say, 10, 15, 20 years, and there's a sense that there's no going back from that. And I think to me, to know the history, to to know as well that a lot of the actors, both good and bad, that were implicated in a lot of these fights that happened, say, 20, 30 years ago, are still around. Thank you for sharing so much of your expertise today. I really hope that our listeners will get a lot out of it. It's been great being here. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when Toronto Pride will have concluded and all the banks on Church Street will be getting to de-rainbow their exteriors. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. The film Winter Kept Us Warm was released in 1965. Funded by a grant from the University of Toronto's Students' Union and largely filmed on campus, it was the first English-language Canadian film to be screened at Cannes. The film is remembered for its depiction of a romantic friendship between two gay male university students. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azriye with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofo. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Hey! 
Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.